Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We prepared an outline for you. It'll be passed around. I've asked Diane to uh, pass this around. This is an outline. It's got the structure. It's got everything really on both sides here. So two sides for you. So use this as part of your study notes. Go ahead, and Diane. Why don't you pass that around to everybody? So as we're going through this, it's important that whenever we do this, and I should mention this, you know, a lot of you, this is your first time going through, you've been to a Calvary Chapel and you're going through a new book with us. And Calvary Chapels, you know, we don't traditionally teach topically, right? We go line by line, verse by verse. So you don't come in here and we don't kind of say, well, you know, here's the new theme, winter's here, and how do you stay warm, right? Or how do you use the warmth of this or that, right? We, we don't do that. We begin a new book. When we finish one book, we go to the next book. In 10 years, when we get through the whole Bible, we do it all over again if the Lord should tell it, right? We just keep going through God's Word. So, you know, this is how we've done it for Calvary Chapel for 40 years. This has been the tradition of what we did. It started with Pastor Chuck and what was put in the start, but I would argue and suggest it started far, far longer in Isaiah. We read where Isaiah would take the scrolls. Jesus Christ himself, 2,000 years ago, would take the scrolls and pull them out and read through them. Ezra the scribe was asked when he was in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8, when he turned around and he came and after the temple, remember they rebuilt the temple and the walls in Nehemiah, and what did they do? They said, go get Ezra the scribe. Where's Ezra the scribe? Go get him. Gather all the people, all the people of Israel. Gather everybody. And you know what they do? They say, where's the word? Where's the law? Get out the word. Get out the law. And they read the word of God together. And they were transformed and they were changed and hearts were we're, you know, humbled. And so, you know, that's why I say we should have such an expectation because there's a heritage to this. We're handling God's word. And it's, it's not like anything else. And, it, you know, when we go back through this, it's, it's so special. So let's, let's start with chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read it in English, and then we'll practice a little mis mispronounced Hebrew. We'll do it. We'll do it for the whole fellowship here. So I'll... Let's read it together, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So simple, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, ready? So let's take it apart. You guys ready for Hebrew? Here we go. Barashith. Say it with me. Barashith. Bara. Let your tongue roll, bara. Elohim. What did we just say? In the beginning, God created. So see that? Now you guys are fluent in Hebrew, man. No. <laughs> no. But, um, you know, everything we need to know comes from this book. Everything we need to know begins with this very first verse. Everything. I would argue it's one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. If you can believe this verse, you can believe the rest of Scripture without a problem. If you stumble on this first verse, though, you're struggling. You're struggling through the rest of the book. You're struggling with your walk with the Lord. You're struggling with faith. This one, Barashith, bara Elohim. So let's go through and talk about what we normally do. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through and we're going to do a simple introduction tonight. Right? We're going to go through and talk about context. We're going to talk about the inspired author. We're going to talk about the dating of Genesis. We're going to talk the literary genre. We're going to go through a little bit of that. And we're going to arrive, hopefully, with about 15 minutes, 10 minutes at the end, where we actually will go line by line through the first verse and really exegete, because in this first verse, 
So much. These few words, so much. So, how many people know what the Tanakh is? One, yeah, the Old Testament, right. And it's interesting, it's, we would, many would refer to it as the Hebrew Bible, okay? So everything we need to know about the book of Genesis or our origins can be tracked to this very book. It's a book of origins. Many people will say beginnings, and that's a fair translation. And a good translation as well is origins. That's what Genesis can mean. It can mean origins or beginnings, right? And as we said, the Tanakh in the Hebrew Bible was a canonical collection, right, of Jewish texts, which is also what we use as our text in our Bibles in the Old Testament today, okay? These texts are composed of mainly Hebrew, obviously, I think, biblical Hebrew. But many people aren't aware that, for example, in Daniel or in Ezra, we see Aramaic. We see some Aramaic come in as well, so that's important. And the tradition of the Hebrew text is known as what we call the Masoretic text. Masoretic text. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. It's where we get some of our original, as we would say, our original writings, our original text, like the King James is an example, right? comes from Textus Receptus as an example. So the name of the book in Genesis in Hebrew is also called what? We, said it, we already said it. Beginnings. What was it? Barashith. That's what we say in Hebrew. So if you were reading this and we were opening this together in Hebrew, at the title where you see Genesis, because you understand it would be in Hebrew, and obviously it would say Barashith. Beginnings. Beginnings like that. So in the beginnings, God created. Or in Hebrew, more accurately, in the beginnings created God. Right? And that's sometimes where the order is, is switched that way. And Barashith is really a combination of two words. Concepts, if you will, roots, if I can say that. Be there, bar, right, or ba, right, is a preposition meaning in or with. Rashith, right, means the first place or a place in time or order or rank. Why is that important? Because as we take again the two concepts, the idea of in or with, right, and then we put it in a place of time, order, and rank, we're clearly saying there was nothing before. Because that's exactly what that word Barashith means. There was nothing before. This is the beginning. So those who say, well, there must have been something before. What this is also telling us is there was nothing else before. We know clearly from the text, clearly from the Hebrew, it's implying nothing. Because the very root, or the etymology that the, that the inspired author used here, which we believe is Moses, right, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose these very words to give us that understanding that there was nothing there was nothing. This wasn't a reshaping. This wasn't something that was added to. There was nothing. And he also tells us by, if we, and we'll exegete this as we go through it later, that God is outside of this creation. He is outside of this creation because if it was created out of nothing, right, in or with, and out of nothing means that he himself would have had to be created in it or he had to be created outside of it which is why he wasn't impacted by his own creation, hence why we believe God has always existed. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And Elohim, when we talk about that, that's plural, but used in singular. And yet, if we read the pronouns in the first verse, they're all singular pronouns. That's a literary, literary masterpiece when you think about how this is written in the Hebrew. We have a plural, now where we see Elohim, God, and yet we see singular pronouns. 
It's very interesting. So as we go through this, the first word, as I said, Bereshith, is understood to mean the first in time, and to say the beginning of time, right? Elohim is a plural masculine noun. If you're taking notes, it's a plural masculine noun. That's why when sometimes people say, well, how do we know if God is a male or female? Because it's a plural masculine noun. That's how we know very clearly in the Hebrew. Unlike English, there is you know, feminine and masculine, and it's clearly a masculine noun. Next, we're told created, bara, right? Or bara, the heavens and the earth. It was all void, and it points to nothing existed but the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Just take a moment to take that in. <coughs> nothing else existed. So powerful, something out of nothing. Does anybody know anyone that can do that, take something out of nothing? The only person I know is Jesus Christ. The only God I know is Elohim. He created something out of nothing. So as we move into our intro sort of to Genesis here, obviously we know this is creation by the divine word, word here, but part of this is also we see a couple of themes that will come through the book of Genesis here. One is the rebellion by the human family, right? We get that. Judgment and grace by our covenant Lord. Now I'm going to use the word election and I want to be careful of that because what I mean is God's chosen people because we know Abraham was chosen as the father of Israel eventually, right? God's chosen people. So we know that's part of it. And then Jacob's descendants. And it was all to convey a message of salvation. All this is clearly found in the beginning chapters of Genesis 1 through 11. We're going to break it down in two different things and we'll go through that in a little bit and we'll go through our outline here. The Genesis, the name itself is a transliteration from the Greek, right? Did you know that? Genesis that we see in our Bible, that's, a transli- that's from the Septuagint, the LXX, right? So that's where we actually get that name, and that is where we get the name meaning source or origin. So when you see that written at the top of your Bible, that's not Hebrew. That's Greek, actually, in the top of your Bible there. And again, Genesis is the first book of the Pentateuch, right? Or Pentateuch, depending on how you want to pronounce it. How many people know what the Pentateuch or Pentateuch is? Right? First five. How do we get that? Penta. What's that meaning? It means five, right? Talk or took was a vessel or container that was used to hold five scrolls. That's what that means. So when we combine the two words, now we understand. It's the first five books with a container that was meant to hold the first five scrolls. Makes sense. Makes sense. The Pentateuch is made, again, we talked about it, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? Now, the Jews, what do they call this? Right? They call this the Torah, or sometimes it's often called instruction, or the English will render it law. Right? We, we, but in the Hebrew, they would call it a Torah. Nehemiah chapter 8, if you wouldn't mind turning in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. I already sort of alluded to this in our introduction about Ezra and how important this was to the people to read from the Pentateuch to read from the, the law, to read from God's word like that. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, again, after they had finished rebuilding the wall, it says, So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave sense and helped them to understand the reading. In other words, what we would call and what we do in Calvary Chapel or what a lot of other churches do, we exegete. We've talked about that before. That's a Greek term, ex, out of, right? Out of what? We're taking, we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Our understanding and meaning comes 
out of the Word of God. We don't eisegete, which is what we would call mirror reading. We don't, I don't read in what I want to see or a presupposition into the Word of God. I allow God's Word to transform me. I allow God's Word to speak to you and I. Amen? So when we see this, where do we get that idea? Why do we do what we do here? Because that's what, it, that's what we're from, like I told you, thousand, thousand years. That's our history. You know, we come from such a, a, a wealth of history, and, and it's ours as well. And it's, it says, so they read distinctly from the book and the law of God, and they gave it sense. How did it have application? What was it doing in our lives? How is it transforming us? And it helped them to understand, right? What were they needing to understand? The things going on in their day, their lives, right? And the Pentateuch contains a wide variety of materials. We see accounts, incidents, laws, rituals, regulations, ceremonies, calendars, exhortations. It's united by a historical narrative. If we look at the type and we look at this, there's a historical narrative through the whole book of Genesis like that. This isn't something that is meant to be symbolized or allegory. This is a historical narrative, and we can take it that way. We can understand that. And again, it might be suggested that the primary elements of the Pentateuch is promise is what? Election. We talked about that, meaning God's chosen people, Israel. Deliverance, a covenant. We're going to have the Abrahamic covenant, right? Law and land. All this is conveyed within this very first book. And what's interesting when you look at the structure of Genesis not only is this book foundational to our understanding of Scripture, but it spans more time than any other book that we have out of the 66 books in our Bible. This spans more time than any other book. The book has two distinct sections. If you're looking on your outline that we provided, you'll see there's multiple chapters and how it breaks down here, but there's two main sections of this. Chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 50. Right? So... Chapters 1 is what we call the premeval history, if you will, or the beginning of history from time. And then the second one is the patriarchal history, when we go to the patriarchs, and that's chapters 12 through 50. Genesis 1 to 11 is a, a preface, if you will, to salvation history, addressing the origins of the world, of humanity, and of sin. Genesis 12 through 50 recounts the origins of redemptive history and God's, again, election, choosing of Israel the patriarchs, the promised land, which is why we go back to Israel now when, you know, governments, when the United Nations and everybody else tries to tell Israel how to redefine their land, we come back and say, no, the original borders, all of that, I mean, they're, they're, not even, they're not even taking a fraction of what was given to them by God. And when people come in and try to say, wow, that was really, you know, this sort of land or that sort of, no, no, no. God had promised to his covenant people. This is a land-grant agreement. It's a covenant. You don't break a covenant. Nobody can come in and override the covenant like that. It wasn't a Susan Vashrel, right? There's two different covenants through all of Scripture, right? There's something called a royal grant covenant, and there's a Susan Vashrel covenant. You look at like an Abraham or Davidic covenant. One type of covenant, the royal grant covenant, is a covenant that exists without somebody on the opposite party keeping their end of the deal, right? The Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to give you many chosen, so many that you can't count in the stars of the sky, right? Nothing Abraham had to do. There was nothing that was required of Abraham, right? Davidic covenant, right? Look at the Davidic covenant or 
Think of some of the other comments where if you don't humble yourself and keep my law, I'll withdraw myself from you. That's called a Susan Vassarow covenant, right, as we go through Scripture. And if we're going a little too deep, this is okay. We, we need to understand because it's very well laid out for us, Genesis. It's very well organized for us. And, and I know you're like, well, we want to just get back to verse 1. We will, but we, we need to build this out because we need to understand that it speaks, there's so much laid out in this first book and it covers so much time, almost 2,400 plus years. There's no other book in the Bible that covers that span of time. Even the quiet period in between was the intertestamental period and that was only 400 years roughly, you know, between Malachi and Matthew. So, I mean, this, is, this contains so much information, it's important. So let's look at our outline. Everybody should have gotten a copy of an outline. If you didn't get one, we'll uh, have one of the ushers bring you one. So first thing we see is that God creates the universe. Chapter 1, right? Six literal 24-hour days. That's our understanding. What's the word in Hebrew for day? Yom. Right? Yom. We see chapters 2 through 5, Adam and Eve. The garden, specifically. Chapter 2, the fall. Chapter 3, the consequence of the fall. Chapters 4 and 5. When we move to chapter 6 through 11, we begin to see Noah and his family. Now, it's interesting how we can also break this down because as we go through the book, we're going to see in Hebrew that the Lord gave us understanding and translation. There's going to be certain things He's going to say, this generation, that generation. He's going to do that 11 times. We'll talk about it when we get to it as we start going through. But it's very interesting as we pull that out, we can see that God even organized the book by generation as well. Not just two sections. He made it so that they could remember and memorize it. And that it became generational. And they could watch us in your families. And it's so cool that the Lord does this. How do you remember your parents, your grandparents? Isn't it by generation? Well, in that generation, they did such and such. Or didn't you know that generation? You know, what do we even categorize or even try to organize today? Well, the Gen X's or the Gen Y's, or I don't even know what they call the newest one. The Millennials or whatever. Is it the Millennials? <coughs> whatever they call it, you get my point. It, but where does that come from? From God's Word. There's nothing new under the sun. Man doesn't create anything. This organization and structure was already laid out. And God put it right in the very first book of His Holy Word. It's awesome. So we see the flood, the new earth, the covenant, the nations. Love, love the nations there. That's where we look forward to uh, the table of nations. And that's where between chapters 11 and chapter 5, that's how we back into so much of our dating in Genesis. That's how we know there's a young earth, an earth that's 6,000 years. That's how we know specifically, and we'll go through this, some of this, this this evening, where we can tell you specifically we know Adam was somewhere around 4,000 B.C. because we have chapter 5 and 11. If we add just up the dates and the times, we can back right into the timing. So it's not a leap of faith that way. Our God's Word tells us that. So we, and we'll go through that tonight. We've got Abraham and Sarah, chapter 11 through chapter 25. Obviously, that's the beginning of the Hebrew nation. How many people knew Abraham was a Gentile? Most of us, some of us, some of you are looking at me going, I never thought about that. He was a Gentile, and yet he's the father of the Jews. And I think that's interesting because sometime uh, there was a story once that I heard from a friend, he said he was on a boat and he was going over there and he was in Israel. And unfortunately, somebody was uh, not treating him as pleasantly because, you know, uh, they said, oh, I won't use the word in Hebrew, but they called him a derogatory term, which sort of meant unclean, you know, a Gentile. There was a, there's a derogatory term they sort of used to, to speak of somebody that was a Gentile and unclean. He wasn't, 
you know, Jewish. And when he was going through this whole thing, he sat there and he just, he kept quiet. He was just, he's just like, Lord, I, I want to tell this man about Jesus Christ. Give me the right words to speak. I'm not looking to create a confrontation or an argument. And, the, you know, he's on the Sea of Galilee. He's only crossing over. It's not that far. And he's sitting there going, okay, Lord, time's running out. What do you have for me? And at the very end of the ride, before he gets off the boat, he looks at him and he goes, you know, I'm a Gentile, you're right. And so was Abraham. I guess I must be in good company. He said the Jewish man literally froze, looked up and just went. And it, like, it, it never clicked. It just clicked for him. And he went, you know, I never thought about that. He said, you know, I want you to think about something else. I want to tell you who Jesus is. Right? I, I just love stories like that because it's so true. We can, you know, the human heart, we can begin to set boundaries. You know, we're different than somebody else. They're different than us. And, and next thing you know, we don't see clearly. We're not. To, and I love that the book of Genesis tells us there's one race. There's one ethnicity, ethnicity that way. One line. Even our science and blood, our DNA is catching up to it. How many people have gone to Answers in Genesis or ever gone to, um, you know, to the Creation Museum there in the Kentucky area, Ohio area there? Oh, we have to take a trip. We're in Genesis. We've got to take a trip there. It'll have to be, you know, road trip, Calvary Chapel, Harrisburg. We're going, man. Um, they have this great map, and we'll go through. Uh, see, I'm getting off track. I can't help it. There's so much awesomeness in this book because you just want to jump off all these places and go. But, and think about it. And in our children's ministry, what, what are some of the most fond stories you have accounts growing up? They're the accounts from Genesis, the flood, right? All these things that you remember, you know, it's, it's awesome. So if you go to Answers in Genesis, they have a map. And on that map, it shows where, you know, Ham went and Japheth and Shem and how they moved off. But last I checked, it was a worldwide flood. That means everybody else died. That wasn't the son's of Noah and his wife, right? Like that. And their wives, of course. That means they repopulated the earth. That means it came from a single bloodline. We could spend the rest of the time tonight, and we, can, and we will go, I can't wait till we get to that chapter and we go through Noah and his family and the flood and everything. Because we need to talk about that. There's so much hatred in this world and bigotry. And it's nonsense. It's a distraction. Because we are one race that way. We're one ethnicity. We all come from this one point of the flood. And we all just happen to move in different areas. You know, some of us went to Germany. Some of us went to Italy. Some of us came to America. But we're all God's children if we've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if not, we're all God's creation. So as we go through this, um, we're going to learn about Isaac and Rebekah, chapters 25 through 28. Jacob and his family, chapter 29 through 38. Again, the, the he, building of the Hebrew nation there. Joseph and his ministry, finishing up chapter 39 through, through 50. And the protection of the Hebrew nation. God's chosen people. And we, con we, saw constant, we see constant judgment through that. I find that very interesting that, you know, people say, why doesn't God ever bring judgment? Oh my. When we're going to go through Genesis, we're going to see there was, there was judgment, and it was quite quick. I mean, right in the garden, we saw immediate judgment. God's long-suffering right now. God's long-suffering. He was long-suffering then, but, but God's long-suffering. So we'll be like, why? Well, have mercy, have grace, just as Jesus did. We're to walk in that. Let's talk about the literary genre, if you will. So the book of Genesis reads like a historical narrative. And it teaches true theology. It's a theological book. Those that try to take it just as a historical narrative and go through it, 
they're missing so much. It's a, it's a theological book, much like the book of John of one of the Gospels. If you look at the other synoptics, you've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? And they're synoptics, meaning like. And then you have John. John is a different Gospel. John is a theological. Not that Matthew, Mark, and Luke aren't. Of course they are. But John is more theological in nature. And so here, Genesis, likewise. It's comprised of 50 chapters spanning over 2,400 years. And it discusses the origins of all things, space, time, and matter. Just think about that for a moment. It's designed by God to teach us our human origin, explain God's divine origin. That's important. That's why I said we have a very good history. We have a very good history. But many of, many of us don't know our history. We don't know our history as God sees it as God had designed it, as his children. See, because that's how God thinks about it, right? It's a book of science. You can't help but not going through Genesis and getting tons and tons of apologetics and science. And we're going to cover that as we go. I mean, even tonight, in the beginning, God created. I can't help but going through the science of the heavens and earth. We're going to have to talk about it tonight. There's so much. It's a book of science, you know. It's kind of interesting. Darwin thought, you know, simple cell organisms were simple, right? As, as we got more advanced technology and we're able to go into the organism, what did we realize? Even simple cell organism, like an amoeba, is what? Complex. And we go in in the cell and you look at the cell and we thought, well, it, it, clearly in a cell it's a small spark. It's, it, there's nothing going to be intelligent. Now we found motors in there, man. Like tails that literally, like a rudder of a boat that steer the cell and move the cell. I mean, the complexity of it all. And yet that goes all and speaks all to an intelligent designer, to God. Where, where if there wasn't an intelligent designer, what would we expect? We would expect as you go more in depth like that, if you go simpler, it would be what? Less complex. But as we take this apart and we, we, go, we realize, no, 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 it's more complex. And yet we're living in a time like no other, where we have had such technological advancements in the last 25, even 50 years, that scientists throughout all the generations wish they would have seen and, and, and been able to have the things we have, the Hubble telescope, all this stuff that we can see, the galaxies, the understanding of it all. And God's given it to us. There is no one without excuse. He says the creations testify. There's no one. And even the scientists that will argue for evolution, they can, they're coming back. Not only do they rest on the fossil record being incomplete that way, but they come back now and say, well, you know what? We can't explain that. Even the idea of the Big Bang Theory, right? Or ideology, as I like to call it. You know, as we're going through that, now they come back and say, well, you know, maybe we're a little harsh. Maybe we're a little hasty there. And we'll talk a little bit about that. So we have the origin of seasons, you know. We have the origins of the rainbow. Covenant promise not to flood the whole, with a worldwide flood again. The origins of curse, sickness, disease, and unfortunately, death. We have a biblical worldview. We have a fossil record. And we see that. Right? It's a historical book. Right? It defines so many things for us. And this is why I'm happy that we're here because there is such an identity crisis going on. It defines marriage. Right in the beginning. Genesis 1.26, 1.27. I created them in the likeness. Right? Male and female. In the likeness of who? Of God. Right? God intended it from the beginning. One man and one woman. 
If we would only pour over his word, we would know exactly how we're supposed to live. We wouldn't have the sin. We wouldn't have AIDS. We wouldn't have all these other things, these diseases, these things that have happened because of our, I say not you and I necessarily, but because of the world's sin, because of the sin nature, better put, of the world. We have the origins of race, of the ethnicity, the bloodline, the reliability of Scripture. And the funny thing, or the interesting thing about that, is it all relies on a literal interpretation. A literal interpretation of this book. And if we interpret this book literally, we have no problems with the rest of the Bible. We don't have any hermeneutical issues. We're able to go through it when we have a sure foundation in Genesis. And it's interesting how the Lord brought us to Revelation first. He showed us where we're going. Now he's going to show us where we've been. Now he's going to show us where we've been and where we were designed to be. Because he's going to create a new heavens and new earth. And we're going to see some of this original beauty he's going to give us again. The tree of life. Right? We've been made by our creator God in his divine image. And yet, we all know it, wrecked by sin, which is what brought the curse on God's perfect creation and yielded us with what? Our sin nature. It's where our sin nature comes from. So clearly, the primary person in this writing, in my belief, is theological. It's not just historical and scientific, but it's theological. Because it's the underpinnings. It's the redemptive story of why Jesus Christ came thousands and thousands of years later to redeem us from the sin that we were dead in our trespasses. There are four major themes throughout the book of Genesis, if you're taking notes. First and primary, God is the creator. God is the designer. The entrance, number two, the entrance of sin into the created order radically altered the origins of creation. When people ask today, why, if there's a loving God, did he allow babies and children and you know, all these things to get cancer? My simple response is he didn't. That's not his design. That was never God's design. We're living in a fallen sinful world because of the disobedience of man. This, was, this is not God's design. It's nothing like God's design. We're going to read, he said it was very good. I'll tell you what, cancer, not very good. Thorns and thistles, not very good. Working and toiling in the land, not very good. Women giving birth and having pain in their labor, women, not very good, right? So clearly, this is not part of God's design. This is the fall of man. And we need to understand that. And we see number three, God's judgment meets human sin at each point. God never condoned this. And therefore, we see judgment that follows it. Hence, the curse as an example. And number four, and I think just the grace of God, His preserving grace, God sustains both the creation and humans by His love and grace. He could, have, he could have started over how many times? He could have said, you know this human thing? It's not working out. It's not working out. I'm going to, go to, I'm going to go to Angels V2. You know, he could have done anything. But he's a loving God. And he wanted right relationship and he wanted free will and free choice so that he knew he was loved because we chose to love him, not because we were forced to. Let's talk about the background and context of the book of Genesis. Again, as I mentioned not only does this book cover more 
time and span there, 2,400 years, this book covers more geographical area than any other book in the Bible. You think about it, from the garden to the Turkey, right? Modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, where we know the ark came to rest upon. Ur the Chaldees, right, where Abraham came from, or Abram at the time, right? We know modern-day Iraq, that is. And then you think of, I mean, that's where Abraham was called out. And then we get into later chapters when we talk about Joseph. Where was Joseph? Egypt. Think about the geographical area that this book spans and covers. But there is one interesting point. When we get to Abraham and Abram, we do see a radical new development. And that's where we begin to see this idea of an election or a chosen people, right? And that doesn't mean that God didn't die, John 3.16, for everyone, right? He did. But it was in spite of Israel. As God talks in his word, it wasn't because Israel was something so magnif- you know, magnificent that he looked and said, look, these are the ones. I would say it was in spite of who they were, the Hebrew people, that he turned around and he said, but these will be my people. And he loved them and he, he gave them blessings and he wanted them to be his covenant people that way. Just like you and I, have made, you know, when we've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we're his covenant people too. We're his covenant people. We're, Paul tells us we're grafted in that way, didn't he? He told us we're grafted in as one, as one. You know, he doesn't call us stepchildren. Doesn't, doesn't say that. We're one. God acts in history to set a motion of series of events that will ultimately lead to what? The restoration of the breach that sin has placed between man and God in all the world. Abraham and the patriarchs themselves regarded as figures of what? Canaanite deities. They were pagans. I mean, Abraham and the family, they were pagans. You know, they were Gentiles. They, had, they were in Canaan. They had, they had begun to worship multiple deities. We need to talk about that. God called him out and put a calling on his life. And he said, leave where you were. Leave Canaan and go, I'm going to give you. Remember, that's the covenant. I'm going to give you a promise. I'm going to give you know, for your people. I'm going to give you as many as, many as sands and star and all that. He says, I'm going to, this is going to be better than anything you can imagine. You're going to have more children. It's amazing. And yet, that's so helpful for any of us because any of us that maybe we didn't come from the right pedigree. Maybe we didn't come from Christian homes. Maybe we're like Abraham and we, were, we grew up in a home where there's a lot of bad stuff practiced. Well, man, then guess what? You're a lot like Abraham. And when God put a calling on your life and he called you out, Abraham never went back to it. Sarai or Sarah never went back to it. It's just like you and I. It's awesome. What a great redemptive story there. You know, Abraham and the patriarchs, because of their deities, they were polytheistic in some ways. We see numerous sites in Israel, Syria, and Mesopotamia that have been excavated, right? Hundreds of thousands of texts have been found there. We know that in 3000 BC, both the great river valleys of Mesopotamia and Egypt artifacts have been discovered to prove there were sophisticated cultures. There's so many people in the world in their ivory towers. Well, clearly there was no intelligence back in 3000 and 4000 BC. So how could have Moses have ever written anything? Really? Well, tell that to the archaeologists that just dug up stuff in the last 50 years where they found the actual texts, and they've dated them to 3000 BC, and there was no intelligent life. Last I checked, Giza, the pyramids, pretty amazing, right? 
They didn't have all the tools we had. They didn't have laser levels, man, that self-calibrated. They used a water level. They were intelligent. I've often argued, I think, that our intelligence over time has gone the opposite direction, right? It's interesting to me. And there's a whole scientific reason and a, a, a biological reason that we can go into that, and we will when we get to that, why I, I would suggest that. But we can see they had sophisticated culture, agricultural advances. They had elaborate drainage, irrigation systems, cities that were discovered. And I think it's important that we talk about this because it's important to the context and the writing of Genesis. We know that hieroglyphic script had already advanced beyond primitive stages by the 4th dynasty, basically 2600 BC. Structural and technological knowledges enabled buildings, like I mentioned, the Great Pyramid in Giza. There's so many archaeological discoveries that it bears the fact that if we, if we understood this, we wouldn't have a problem with an early date or an early dating or writing of the book of Genesis. And we're going to talk about that as we get into the dating. We know that, or we believe that this took place maybe 1,500 years before Israel was even going to appear. So for Moses to come, and oh, by the way, hieroglyphics. What's that again? Where do we see hieroglyphics and what? Egypt, right? And Moses was a son of who again? Pharaoh. A son, right? Of Pharaoh. And he was educated by the best and brightest at that time. He would have, he would have grown up in Pharaoh's you know, temple area there. And so when people come back and say, well, wow, I, I never thought about that. Well, yeah, God did. He set this all in motion. He had given Moses the very education to be able to not, not only understand the Egyptian his, history or the you know, history of Mesopotamia, the whole area, but then when he meets him at that burning bush, he gives him revelation. So all the things that he thought he knew about, you remember, you know, they used to believe that in Egypt that the, the earth was flat and all the other stuff, they, went, you know, they, would, they would say, oh, can you imagine Moses? I mean, when he's meeting God at the burning bush, we only get some of what he said. I wonder if he went... So, you know, is this true? Is it really flat? I mean, golly, everything else you're telling me is different. You're telling me that in the beginning, God created. You're telling me you created. Where before, we were worshiping these pagan deities. We were polytheistic. We were worshiping all these other gods and all these other things, thinking that was the creator. That was the beginning. But you're telling me something so different. Everything I thought I knew, I had to throw out. But doesn't that sound familiar, Christian? When we got saved and the scales fell from our eyes and we were no longer spiritually blind and we could pick up this book and we could read this book and it would be written in the tablets of our hearts and God through the Holy Spirit gave us teaching and He illuminated it for us. Did we not have that same epiphany? Like, Lord, I grew up thinking all these things, money, wealth, you know, materialism, all this stuff was important. And now I know that What's most important is right relationship with you. It's not works-based. It's not like all these other religions or philosophies out there of what I can do. I mean, you basically have told me I can do nothing that way. That it's only through you, Christ. You're the creator. You're the designer. You're God. I mean, he gave us the best apologetics dissertation that I think any of us can go in and just lay it out, man. Just lay it out. That's why going through Genesis is like going through an apologetics class. 
Because literally you come out and you can give so many reasons for the hope that lies within us, which is why Peter told us to study the, all the Word, all the counsel of God. See, all this is going to be important in helping us stay in this. So if we look at aspired authorship, obviously it's important that I say this. You know 2 Timothy 3.16, you know, all Word is God-breathed. So when we talk about authorship, I'm talking about human authorship. But we know the inspiration is through the Holy Spirit. So who wrote Genesis and the Pentateuch, right? It's a good question. The critics like to immediately attack authorship. You know, the, the, this book, like all books of the Bible, we know it was inspired, but who was really the man that was moved to pen these things or write these things or draw the script of these things, however you'd like to say it? Some liberal commentators have suggested that it was written during the period of Israel's history from about the time of King Hezekiah to Ezra, the scribe. Now, I believe in a clear majority, I think, believe that Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books. And I think this has been accepted and understood by even almost all of the early you know, church fathers or Christian fathers. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, verse 27. See, there's something that I think trumps any early church father. I think allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. Jesus already told us the answer. So I'm going to go to God because I trust Him and His Word more than anything else. So while I appreciate the extra biblical evidence, like the early church fathers, I want to see what the Bible has to say about it. So Luke chapter 24, looking at verse 27, right? we're going to see that this is the view that Jesus Christ Himself espoused. And beginning at Moses... And all the prophets he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what did that say? Do you remember that? That's when Jesus had met after he had risen. He had met with them and he said, look, beginning with Moses. Beginning with Moses. Do I say it again? Beginning with Moses. We getting it? God has already, Jesus has already said it's Moses. Beginning with Moses. And then, and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures concerning himself. How Jesus Christ is found in all of the Old Testament as well. Many people say, well, Jesus, you're just in the New Covenant. And it's absolutely not. You can find, I forget, somebody once said statistically, I think it's every chapter or every, I don't remember how many verses, you can find Christ, Messiah, throughout all God's word. Not just the New Testament, but obviously the Old Testament. Look at verse 44 in chapter 24. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be filled which were written in the law of James. No? Yours doesn't say James? Moses. Written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning who? Jesus. You see, he's given us the answer. And yet, there are these men that are paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to sit in their ivory towers, and they're debating this. And, these are the, and, the, and, the, and it's your best seminaries, as they would say. This is what they're teaching. It's called textual criticism. I've, I've, I went to seminary. I, I can tell you, they go into these classrooms, and they literally will sit there, and they will argue about the textual. Well, you know, the first chapter, I think it's chapter, a lot of the critics will come, I think it's chapter 2, and then they will say, well, I'll even give you a simple one, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Looking at God, we know in chapter 1 in the Hebrew, Elohim, right? If you look at chapter 2, when you see the word God, it's Yahweh. Well, that can't be the same author. What? What? All that studying's made you mental. What? 
You can't, I mean, really, I don't mean to poke fun, but come on. I mean, you, you, you get a doctorate degree and you can't figure out that you don't know the names of God and how they're used, one being plural and one being singular, one speaking, you know, in reverence, one speaking to create. I mean, you're struggling with this? You know, it's, but it happens, and I'm telling you, it happens in seminaries. Good men go into seminaries and they come out wrecked. They come out wrecked. Now, not all seminaries are like that. There are some good seminaries that are still out there, but they're few. And you, gotta, you really got to be a student. You really got to be a good consumer. You need to go in there and ask questions. You know, what do you believe? Why do you teach what you teach? And flat out, a lot of them will tell you, look, our first year, graduate, our first year students coming in, we want them to be all textual critics, even if they're going to go into pastoral studies. Wow. So you want me to argue why certain texts, I mean, it's, it's all about pride. Because if you can come up with a new novel idea, you can be published. If you can be published, you can get grants. You bring money into the institution. It's called academic capitalism. Just like anything else, there's corruption. And I think it needs to be talked about. But here, my God tells me that I don't need to have some advanced degree. I need to be a student of my scripture. And I may be able to read and turn through the pages or have someone read the scriptures to me. And trust that the Holy Spirit's going to be my teacher and he's going to wash me with his word. And when he does that, he's going to enlighten me. He's going to teach me. And he's going to teach me to go to Luke chapter 24 and he's going to tell me to read what I just shared with you. And he's going to say, Moses is the author. That's it. My God said it. What more do I need? I either believe in the words of Jesus Christ or I don't. And once you start taking away that, and that's what some of these scholars do, you've removed the entire foundation of Scripture. Because where do you draw that line? Where do you draw the line? Joshua, if you're taking notes, write these down. Joshua chapter 1, verse 7. Ezra chapter 6, verse 18. Daniel chapter 9, verse 11. And verse 13. John chapter 5. All refer to Moses as the one who wrote the Pentateuch. Jews again would call it the Torah, but it's, it's the same point. It's the book of Moses in total, and it's given him authorship and ascribed to him. So the book of Genesis, again, getting back to our, our authorship here, the book of Genesis itself is quoted from or alluded to at least 200 times in the New Testament. Moses is mentioned at least 80 times by name and 25 times attributed to specific passages, either to Moses or the book of the Pentateuch itself. It's talked about quite a lot in the New Testament. It wasn't until the 16th century that a scholar began to challenge this teaching by the name of Jean Astruc. He argued that again, and I gave you the example, chapter 1 of Genesis, God referred to Elohim, and chapter 2, he referred to Yahweh. So you might be saying, what gives two different authors? But I think he did too much assuming. And you know what they say about assuming? It messes you up. It messes you up, right? He completely ignored all of the facts that we found in Scripture, the references I just shared with you. He, he ignored all that, and he allowed his wisdom and his pride and intellect over God's holy word. You see, that's, there's nothing new that way. There's no one that's going to come out and find something new in the word of God that way. God has already made it. He's already wrote it. He said, no one add to this or take away from the word of God. Remember that in Revelation? It's for the whole counsel of God. So people that are coming out say, so, wow, we got to find something new so we can, we can publish and we can... 
How about just allowing it to minister and transform us? That's, that's a novel new idea today, in the days we're living. Now, the other thing that he completely ignored is that many words that we'll read, and we'll talk about some of them, are Egyptian words, Egyptian idioms that we read in the book of Genesis, language use. And now that makes a sense again, because where was Moses educated? Egypt, by Pharaoh. Being raised in Pharaoh's home, educated in Egypt, makes sense that Moses is the author. Again, we've got to be careful not to allow man's wisdom to be elevated above God's word. So, Moses being the author, how did he receive the word that we have here today? How did we receive the beginnings or the origins, the book of beginning or origins? Well, Galatians chapter 1, verse 12 gives us one idea. If you remember Paul, when Paul met with Christ like that, he had direct revelation from Jesus Christ, right? So could Moses have gotten direct revelation from God as Paul had? Of course, it's possible, right? He was met at the burning bush. He fellowshiped with God that way. It also could be he received oral traditions, right? Because back, if you go back to the patriarchs and even earlier, one of the things that was very common around family, and again, you look at this when we do sociology studies, is that stories or accounts were passed down orally, and they would be passed down family to family over time, thousands and thousands of years, right? Well, the thing that's interesting about that is if you take the manuscripts and the early manuscripts and you begin to look at them and you begin to look at the difference, it's less than 1% over thousands and thousands of years. And most of them are what we would say either you know, I don't want to say a typo, but, but maybe a mistranslation. Less than 1% in the entire Bible. There's no other work that we have that, are, that is in existence today that we can compare anything to like that. So if it was oral traditions, normally they say, well, if you say grapes, you might say grape juice. You might, you know, it begins to build and build and build. The next thing you know, yeah, we had apple juice yesterday while we were drinking apple, you know, while we were having apple pie, right? We don't see that. We see everything. I mean, thousands of years have passed. So if it was oral tradition, what does that mean? Well, one of two things. One, they were really good at passing oral traditions. Or two, this is the inspired word of God, and he made sure that not a jot or tittle would be lost or out of place. He supernaturally has kept this book, the entire 66 books of our Bible, in canon like that. So that we have the ability to read and pick up his word and know our designer, our creator. And then third, he took, some suggest he took the actual written word of the past, collected some of those, took of some of the form he had, and then he put it all together and guided by the Holy Spirit that way. I mean, that's possible. He could have taken some of the oral traditions. He could have taken some of the, you know, especially in the beginning God created. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue and say, well, that was probably a burning bush moment. Who are you? I am, right? Well, what does that mean? Well, I, I created everything, you know? And it's probably one of those direct revelations that way. So it appears minimally, I would say, that he compiled these materials, but Moses seemed to organize these original documents by, like I mentioned earlier, generations. Now, who, know what's the, who knows what the Toledoth is? Toledoth. Anybody know that? That's the Hebrew word for generations. There are 11 divisions in Genesis. If you're taking notes, these are great. Just look in your Bible right now. Chapter 2, verse 4. Look at the first one. 
This is the history of the earth and when it was created. You see that? That's the heavens and the earth. Turn to Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam, or generation of Adam, right? See that one? Turn to chapter 6, verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah, right? Then we could do that, Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. The sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Genesis 11, chapter 11, verse 27, the generations of Terah. Genesis chapter 25, verse 12, the generations of Ishmael. You get the point. I mean, you can keep going. Generations, you know, Genesis 25, 19, Genesis 36, 1, Genesis 36, 9, Genesis 37, 2. There's 11 divisions or generations that way, right? Toledoth. That's what the word means in Hebrew. So if Moses did take these works, then he was inspired to then organize them generationally. It's interesting. So let's talk about dates. The first is that we'd have to have all, the, all this written here. The argument would be, when did he date it? When would Moses have dated this book, right? So the first idea or suggestion is that all of this was given to him and, and, you know, before he was a Jew, when he was still in Egypt, when he was still Pharaoh's son, and he had all the tools at his disposal. That's a possibility, right? The second, and I believe, again, more plausible, as I've been saying, I, is, is he wrote this later, after he met with God, the burning bush. He had direct revelation. I mean, think about it, because before this time, everything he would have written would have been completely you know, Egyptian in nature. It would have been polytheistic. It would have been, this is how things were. This is how it began. The earth was flat. The cloud is like a, um, he used to say, it, they used to say it was like an orb, the cloud. It was like this little half-cut orb open. And that was, you know, that was teaching from Egypt. We don't see any of that. We see firmaments in the sky, heavens, layers, you know, plural. We, we don't see any of the teaching. So clearly, in my opinion, this is after he, but you be Berean, this is after he met with God because he met with God and God gave him his revelation at that burning bush. I mean, think about it. Moses was 40 years old when he was called into ministry. 40 years old when he was called into ministry at the burning bush. And everything that he had learned, the flat earth, the dome of the clouds, this would have been in direct view, a direct opposite of everything he had learned for the first 40 years of his life. And we don't see any of that here. After, everything, after he meets with God, everything changes. He writes Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What a difference. So here are some dates, if you're taking notes. Again, clearly we believe in a young earth because we believe Scripture teaches young earth. 6,000 years. Adam, about 4,000 B.C. The flood, 2,400 B.C. Abraham, 2,000 B.C. Jacob, 1,900 B.C. Joseph, about 1,800 B.C. Moses in the Exodus, about 1,400 B.C. Pastor Matt, where'd you get those dates? You just rattled off dates, but how do we get them? Good. Look at chapter 5 in your Bibles, in Genesis here. And you can look at chapter 11. Chapter 5 tells us, if you add up all in chapter 5, all those numbers there, if you're math students, you'll get 1,656 is the number. And what that is, is the years from Adam to the flood. If you go to chapter 11, right, right after the table of nations in chapter 10, you get 427 years, because there's numbers there again. So that's from the flood to Abraham's call. So what's that total? 2,000 in 83 years. 
So if we take 2,083 years, that's how we back into Adam, because we know when the flood was roughly around 2,400, we know that. It backs into about 4,000 B.C. for Adam. And we know that before Adam, there was a garden God had built, and, you know, and Adam came and named him, and all the things that happened with the animals there. So now we get to turn and actually go through an exegete, which is why we're all here. We want to hear God's word. But I think it was important. Hopefully this was helpful you know, tonight to be able to go through this book as the beginning so you kind of get an understanding of just how much God did it. The design, the, the generations, the literary genre, the historical, the science, the dating. I mean, there's so much richness in this and so much trustworthiness that we can come back and believe everything that's written here without question. And when we talk to other people and they say, well, you're studying the book of Genesis. Ah, I thought that book's a fiction. Isn't that with the bathtub toy with the, the animals hanging out, the, ba- you know, the boat, and the boat looks all you know, contorted, and there was like 300 kinds? How is that possible? Well, actually, did you know that there were hieroglyphics in 3000 B.C.? And, you know, Moses wrote that, but Jesus actually accounted that to him. And you begin to have a conversation, and all of a sudden they're, whoa, I, I didn't know all that. God gave that all to you and I? Yeah. He didn't expect us to have a blind faith that way. He just said, seek, right? Knock, and I'll show you, right? That's what he's done. So as we look here again, turn back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God created, right? Like I said, if you believe God created, you'll have no problem with believing the rest of the Bible. The term here, as we mentioned earlier as I was doing the introduction, Elohim. Grammatically, it's a plural word used as if it were singular. The verbs and pronouns used with Elohim should be plural, but they're not. They're singular. And and what it refers to is that the Lord God, the verb and the pronouns, by being singular like that, speak to the Trinity. Now here, this is really cool. A rabbi by the name of Jokai, right? He wrote this, and, and you almost, as a rabbi, he's writing this, you almost want to go, come on, you just, you just define the Trinity right there. Don't, come on, you know what you just did. But anyway, listen to this for a minute. He says, come and see the mystery of the word Elohim. There are three degrees, okay, and each degree by itself alone. And, not, and yet, notwithstanding, they are all one and joined together in one, and are not divided from each other. That's the best definition of the Trinity I've ever read. I mean, I read that, and I was like, amen. And this is from a rabbi. I was sitting there going, brother, somebody needs to tell you about Jesus Christ right now. You're halfway there, man. You got the Trinity down. You can't help but see the doctrine of the Trinity here. I mean, Trinity and unity, it's expressed in this very first verse we read. But we have a clear testimony that Moses, I believe he aimed at this. I believe God was showing us this here. He wanted us to understand that there were three persons in one divine nature. It was Holy Spirit given. It was a gift for you and I so that we would understand. It says God created the heavens. The simple fact is God's creation is even more amazing when we consider the greatness of God's universe. So I love this, man. Start going through some of the science here. A typical galaxy contains billions of individual stars. Our galaxy, right, the Milky Way, contains 200 billion stars. Our galaxy is shaped like a giant spiral rotating in space 
with arms reaching out like a pinwheel, if you've ever seen a pinwheel. And our sun is one star on one arm of the pinwheel. It would take 250 million years for the pinwheel to make one full rotation. Just one rotation around. 250 million years. But this is only our galaxy. You think about it, there's many other galaxies, right? Many other shapes, spirals, spherical clusters, fat pancakes. I don't know how else to describe it. It's what they look like to me. Food, I get stuck with that. The average distance between one galaxy and another, right, is somewhere to between 20 million to trillion million miles or around somewhere around 13 billion light years. Our closest galaxy is Andromeda. It's about 12 million trillion miles away or 2 million light years away. A light year is 6 trillion miles for you math fans that want to go back and figure that out. Isaiah chapter 48. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 48, 13. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 13. I love the Lord's given us all these nuggets. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. Just think about the power of that, the universe. And yet there are those 99.9% of the universe is still undiscovered. Scientists would say, even evolutionists would say. They can only discover 0.1% and yet they try to define it with the Big Bang Theory. Since God created the heavens and the earth, the idea that anything happens by chance is futile. They're mutually exclusive. You can't believe that God, an intelligent God, who predestined the earth and heavens to be created, could also, by happenstance, say, well, you move this, we'll move this, and everybody close their eyes, let's see what's going to happen. I mean, he didn't do that. This was very well detailed in design. This speaks to an intelligent designer. So there is no happenstance there. God created. Inherent in this idea is that there's an intelligent designer. Only an intelligent designer could create a just right universe. What do you mean by just right? Again, I mean no happenstance. The universe, think about this. The universe is just right from a gravitational perspective, right? From a force. If it were too large, the stars would be too hot. And what would they do? Burn up, right? If they burned up too quickly, it wouldn't support any life. If it was too small, the stars would remain so cool that nuclear fusion would never ignite and there would be no heat or light. You and I would be dead because we'd be living on an iceberg, right? Do you see the delicate balance in all of this? God created. And if you believe God created, you don't have any problem with God holding this all together because that's what he does. Every morning we wake up, our knees, our legs are touched the ground. Uh, we look up and we see a sun. We breathe air. It's amazing what God's done. So there's no pre-existing material here. It tells us as God created, that means that that word bara, right, again, is telling us it's not creating, it's creating something out of nothing. That's what the Hebrew word means there. It's, it's not God as... You know, in his creation, he's separate from his creation. You know, you and I as humans, we can only fashion or form things out of existing material. The closest we come to creating, and I think this is interesting, is what? Is reproducing ourselves. 
It's, it's through sexuality that way, right? Through sex, that we married couples, a husband and a wife. That's the closest we came come to reproducing anything truly like that. And I believe maybe this is one of the reasons that Satan has perverted sexuality, confused it, and so many of these young minds and young people today, male and male, female and female, given to unholy and unnatural things. Maybe that's the reason he did it. He wanted to destroy God's plan, one man and one woman. I think it's deeply connected to our image and our fellowship and relationship with God. And remember, he does not want us to bring any glory to God. And anything he can do to break right relationship, he's going to. He's going to. In 1913, an astronomer in Arizona discovered stars appeared to be moving away from the Earth at really fast or tremendous speed, right? Up to 2 million miles an hour. Just try to even imagine that in your mind's eye. How you could even really see that, right? Two million miles, he says, man, I think that's going two million miles an hour. Really, like I struggle with 60 or 30. This man's like, yeah, that's about two million. I mean, he's seeing this, these stars are moving away, right? Yet in 1919, another American astronomer named Edwin Hubble, you should recognize that name, used this information to develop a theory of an expanding universe, which is the foundation of the Big Bang. This is where it all comes from, this Big Bang idea. Early on, other scientists discovered background radiation from all parts of the universe, which they supposed to be leftover noise from this great explosion. But scientists really aren't any closer to understanding what this means. In fact, the more they find out, the more they discover, the more they realize they don't know what they don't know. Astrophysicists are faced with another challenge, and that's trying to figure out what is dark matter. Dark matter is a term that scientists use to explain the enormous apparent of excess gravity in the universe. And as I mentioned earlier, dark matter makes up 99.9% .9 of everything in our universe. But nobody really knows what it is. But I know someone who does, and so do you, because he put it there. And that's God. You know, the uncertainty, if you go back to March 6, 1995, there was a front page article in LA, in the LA Times, and it, ha it headlined, Rethinking Cosmic Questions. You know, recent observations, for example, suggest that the universe was maybe younger than they had thought. And maybe younger than the oldest star, an enigma that astronomers were, were scrambling for. They were trying to figure out an explanation. How can this be? And again, they were so astonished because when asked, well, how much of a data set do you have? They said 0.1%. Now, if anybody did a clinical trial or did anything with statistics, I studied econometrics, anybody using econometrics, you would know that a confidence interval is roughly 98 or 95 percent. And to have a, con a confidence interval of 95 or 98 percent, you have to have a beta and a regression. You have a t-table and you look up your, your regression like that. And when you put that all through and you go and you calculate this, you come up with a theory, right? A dependent variable, three independent variables, and you be, that's what a regression is in essence. It's taking qualitative analysis and trying to mix it with quantitative analysis. They call it a mixed methodology. So when you go through this and you look at this, if you took a model with less than 0.1% data set, you know what somebody would look at? If anybody's a scientist, I know we have a chemist in the room, anybody like that? If they looked at that, they would say, I'm sorry, that's your data set, 0.1%? They would throw the data set out. They'd say, absolutely not. 
Right? We won't even allow clinical studies unless we get at least 5, 10, 15, 20%. And yet they come up with a whole theory that has wrecked men and women for ages, and they're still teaching it in our public schools. They know these diagrams are wrong, they know these things are wrong, and they still print them in textbooks when they've only got 0.1% data model to go off of. Or they can just go and read their Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. It's quite simple. But oh yeah, that's right, they took the Bibles out of school. They took prayer out of school. It's kind of like we have an enemy, right? Isn't it like we have an enemy that's trying to remove God's holy word and his truth from us? You know I'm being facetious. We do, but yet there's so much of the world that doesn't recognize that we have a, that the devil, we have an enemy, and he's trying to destroy us, and he loves that so much of the world today is biblically illiterate. And if they just went to Genesis 1-1 and started there, their understanding would be so much clearer. Psalm 136, we don't have time, we're already over for today, but if you go through and read it in your devotional time, it does such a wonderful job, as God's Word always does, connecting the creation account with the mercy and the rest of Israel in a seamless fabric. It's, it talks about how the account isn't historical fiction, but this is real and how God did this. As I mentioned, Jesus had already quoted that Genesis was purely a historical record in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, and chapter 23, verses 35. And I'm reminded of Proverbs chapter 25, too. The, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search it out. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search it out. Since scientific inquiry is the glory of man, yes, it must be all done with the utmost humility. When we come to the Word of God here, we have to come with a humble heart. See, realizing God conceals these matters for men to search them out. That's why when I was saying if we would search, if we would read, if we would seek, He said we would find. And all we needed to do was go to the very first book of His inspired Word, to know exactly how all things are held together, that He created everything, that He loves us, and that He's holding it all together. I mean, it's amazing. He's given it in the very first verse of His entire Word. We need to approach our time, our rest of the time, whether it be one year, two years, however long it, it, the Lord should have us here, with just reverential awe and humility, just awe and humility of this book. With all the redefining of God's Word going on in the world, and I would suggest worse yet in the church, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to go to, to Genesis and allow our iron to be sharpened. Amen?